Well, good morning again. We are in uh, John 4 this morning, picking up at verse 43, and we'll read into chapter 5. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that, when the hour, that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into, into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus uh, answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, God gives us his word, as we say often, so that we can know him, so we can love him, because he has not left us to our own devices, but has told us the way to him. So let's pray that his word would be clear. 
Father, we ask that as we come to you this morning, as we listen to your word, that not only would we understand it, but that in understanding it, it would take root and change the way that we live our lives. We ask that the work of Jesus in particular would be crystal clear. We ask all of it in his name. Amen. Now, some of you may have heard, maybe you took a religion class at some point, uh, or maybe you were into the Da Vinci Code, whatever that was, like 15 years ago or whenever that came out, uh, that there's other gospels that are out there. And it's true, there, are, there were a bunch of gospels that various sort of deviant groups wrote about Jesus. Now, all the scholars would also tell you they're all clearly from the second or third century, quite a bit after the four Gospels that are in the Bible. But if you ever take up to reading those, and I don't know, you might, it's, they're an interesting, strange read, uh, you'll discover a lot of things are kind of different in there. One, one of the things that happens is that you discover most of the sayings that are attributed to Jesus that are not actually from the four Gospels in the Bible are always a little weird. They're always kind of strange. They're often really into esoteric questions that a lot of these kinds of deviant forms of Christianity were really interested in, uh, getting into all this cosmology and the ranking of all these different like spiritual beings that, you know, have nothing to do with what most of the rest of the Bible has anything to say about. Uh, another thing that you'll find is that uh, some of those Gospels, anyway, are really interested in Jesus' power, in his miracles and what he could possibly have done. And so they tell all kinds of stories. One, one interesting version of this is, uh, is commonly called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Um, and so the, this is a bunch of stories that are made up about Jesus when he was little. Uh, one, so in one of them, he's making clay pigeons uh, in the dirt and... Uh, they come along, it's the Sabbath, and somebody comes along, and so Jesus just has them turn into real birds and fly away. Yeah. Uh, which, okay, you know, whatever, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of weird things that happen, too. At one point, another boy who's playing with him bumps into him, and Jesus strikes him down dead, you know? And there's other things like that, which is like, whoa, I don't know. I don't know about that. There are, these stories are all made up anyway. But... <laughs> But what you find is a kind of obsession with Jesus' miracle-making ability, which is weird because what we, do, what we find in the Bible, what we find in these four Gospels, is that Jesus' miracles are never a naked display of power. You know, presumably, if Jesus just wanted to sort of make the fireworks happen, he could have done a lot of different things. But instead, we're told they're intentional. In fact, there's a word used at the, uh, at the very end of chapter 4, verse 54, that this was a sign. And John really very intentionally uses that word all throughout the gospel about Jesus' miracles, that they are never an end in themselves. They are always meant to help us understand something more clearly about who Jesus is and what he's doing. They are signs pointing to someplace else. And these two miracles in particular, these two healings, are signs for us. They are signs that show us how Jesus saves. Jesus saves by his ability, his authority, and his affection. 
Jesus saves by his ability, authority, and affection. Jesus' ability is made crystal clear in the first of these two healings, the one that ends chapter 4. Jesus, uh, it's kind of curious actually how this particular portion begins. In verse 44, we're told that Jesus says that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, the synoptic gospels, the other three, quote Jesus saying something similar to this, uh, each of them. And so, this is obviously something Jesus was interested in, and yet it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense what follows in verse 45 unless you realize, because it says he gets a good reception, unless you realize that it says it's because they've seen what he did in Jerusalem. They saw his miracles. Because the story that follows is, is all about, look, are you just in this for the miracles? Are you just in this for what you get out of it? In other words, what Jesus is recognizing is that people want him to be useful to do something that they want. But Jesus is not interested in doing what everybody wants him to do. He has other plans. But this official does come to Jesus. He comes to him uh, and wants Jesus, if the geography is a little unclear, Jesus comes to a town named Cana and is staying there. That's where the wedding was at back in chapter 2 where he changed the water into wine. Capernaum is where this man is from. And this was a day or so journey. Uh, apart. So, what, they, weren't, they weren't towns right next to each other. They're in the same region, so he hears that Jesus is nearby, and he makes that trip. And that's why there's the delay uh, when his messengers come to him. So, he goes, he goes down to see Jesus, and he wants Jesus to come with him. And the reason is, and this is, this is important to understand, is that the ancient world, and in fact, maybe most humans for most of human history, have been interested in magic, the idea that, there, that somebody who's got, who can heal has obviously mastered some sort of secret technique, right? They have a kind of mastery over some process to make this thing happen. So, his default assumption is, Jesus needs to come with me to perform this miracle because he's got to do whatever it is that he does, <laughs> whatever secret kind of techne that he, he, he possesses, right, that, that to, to make this thing happen. You see, that's why Jesus is pushing back on him, right, uh, about whether he wants to see the signs and wonders, why the rest of the crowd is all interested in him is they're, they're interested in him as an instrument for getting what they want. And Jesus pushes back, is that all that you've come for? And when the man responds that he just wants his son. I, you know, I think that's the upshot of verse 49, his reply, is that he just wants his son healed. All Jesus has to do is speak a word. And it happens. And then we get the whole business about him meeting his servants, right, and starting to put the timeline together, that it was just at that moment Jesus spoke that his son was healed from a distance, right? Jesus didn't need to be there physically, because Jesus' Jesus' ability rested not in his mastery of technique, but in his identity as the Son of God. 
Right? He has divine power. <laughs> Technique is not a thing he needs to master because just like the Lord created with a word, all he has to do is speak the word and this man's son is healed. And I belabor all that stuff about magic because that, that really is what's going on here. This guy thinks that Jesus has mastered a technique. He has not come to really understand who Jesus is. He, so often we misunderstand the miracles and things like that and forget that they are signs of something more. Jesus is always being intentional about these miracles. And, but we have agendas that we want to instrumentalize Jesus for. We've got things we want done, so we want Jesus to do them. I mean, that's all of us. It happens over and over and over again. I mean, we are obsessed, really, with our ability to control things. And again, that's nothing new. In the ancient world, that was magic. Although, what's fascinating is we now talk about science all the time, but it's the same fascination, our ability to control things. In fact, historically, those two things are not that far apart. Uh, Isaac Newton, you know, the great scientist, was, you know, he, he created calculus, came, you know, <laughs> discovered optics. Those of us who need glasses, right, wouldn't we? <laughs> Gravity. He was also really into alchemy, like trying to find the secret of changing, you know, metals into gold and silver. It's the line between, in fact, uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Abolition of Man, and Lewis was a medieval and Renaissance scholar, actually points out that, the, that magic and science were kind of partners for a long time, especially, and actually what he points out is, while there are stories about things magical happening in the Middle Ages, in the, people in the Middle Ages were not actually all that obsessed with trying to learn magic, that that happens in the 16th and 17th century. If you think about the Salem witch trials, right, that's the 1690s. That seems like some sort of medieval thing in our imagination, but it's not. Uh, they, they, they are of the same ilk. In fact, what, one of the thing that is so fascinating that, if you can understand this parallel, that uh, Lewis points out, is he says, Francis Bacon and the myth of Faust are after the same thing. Now, you might know who Francis Bacon is. That might be a little more familiar name. He, of course, wrote some of the first scientific treatise, you know, treatises. Uh, the scientific method sort of starts with Francis Bacon. Bacon, though, was really crystal clear that science is not about learning for knowledge's sake, but it's about our ability to control the natural world. Now, the myth of Faust, which might not be as familiar, was a very common story from the late Middle Ages and into the early Renaissance about a guy who sold his soul to the devil for magical abilities so that he could control others around him. I'm belaboring this point, and that might seem like a, a long way around to say we are just as obsessed with controlling what is going on around us as these people who thought magic was a real thing. If, if this isn't crystal clear, I hope the last two years have proved this point. I mean, how many times did you hear the line, we're following the science? 
And that isn't because the science was bad. And I think, I mean, I think as a church, we tried to be careful to listen to those questions. It's not that science was bad, but it doesn't answer the questions we needed it to answer. That there were still lingering questions about what did we value and what would we trade off for what? Which are questions, of course, that, look, I mean, science itself admits it doesn't answer. But we've made science into a thing. There's a, there's a version of this that we have kind of made into a default religion. Uh, an atheist uh, philosopher, current guy named John Gray, writes this. He says, most people today think they belong to a species that can, master, can be master of its own destiny. This is faith, not science. In fact, he goes on to point out then that those who aren't certain that science can answer every question have now become the doubters. He points out that once when the church was the institution that claimed all authority to itself, now science does that, and churches have become the sanctuary of doubt. That's his phrase, sanctuaries of doubt. Again, the point is not, of course, that science is a problem. The point is it demonstrates our obsession with it, our making a religion of it, demonstrates our obsession with controlling what's going on around us. And what Jesus is showing this man, what this miracle shows us, is that we cannot control what is around us, but he can. If you want to know what this looks like practically, just stop and think about the problems in your life, the problems going on around you, and how you respond. Think about your own health. When there's a problem, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to take action, grab the reins, make sure that we've done every possible thing that we can Or do we go to the Lord in prayer? Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't take action, right? Prayer doesn't mean we're just not going to do anything about it. But is our first instinct to grab control? Or is it to go to the one who is in control? You see the difference? Do we obsess in over our fears, or do we turn to him in trust? When things are difficult at work, what do you do? When we look around at global issues, what do we do? Do we stew in fear and sort of doom scroll through the news over and over again, or do we go to the Lord in trust? Do we respond with outrage Or do we turn to him in lament? The Bible's not asking us to pretend that our, some of our circumstances are not difficult. Maybe difficult in the extreme. But the difference is the controlling mind thinks, I've got to rage against this. The trusting mind says, I need to turn to the Lord in lament and in prayer. Jesus has the ability 
Jesus is the one who provides what is needed. So he has the ability, but he also has authority. And the second miracle makes this more clear. Jesus comes to this place called Bethesda, a pool in Jerusalem. They've excavated it, you know, the archaeologists. And it's got five colonnades. In other words, it's got shade (laughs) around the pool, right? So you're not just sitting out there, you know, baking all day long. Uh, And we don't know a lot about this from other sources, really. Apparently, uh, when the water was stirred, it was at least believed that if you got into the water, you were going to be healed, or the first person anyway. Um, and what is described with, the, with a number of the ailments here makes that, you know, you better hope you're healed when you get in that water, because it would be a bad situation for a number of these folks if they, if they aren't. And it's not clear, by the way, that Jesus is even endorsing this practice. <laughs> And that's, a, that's another thing that's interesting, right? It's like, Jesus shows up here, but why? I mean, these are folks who are hanging on to the barest thread of a possibility that maybe they can be healed. Do you, do you see that? They're hanging around for something. In the absence of any kind of reliable source for healing, they'll go to whatever presents itself. And so that's why it's so striking in verse 6 when Jesus asks him this question, do you want to be healed? Think about that question for a minute. He comes up to this man who's, whatever, is hap- whatever happened to him for 38 years has had whatever disability is exactly that ails him for 38 years. And he's hanging out at this pool. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Like, at one level, of course he wants to be healed, right? I mean, he wouldn't be there if he didn't want to be healed. Of course he wants to be healed. Anybody who's sick wants to be healed, right? I'm not actually sure that that is true. Not, not because people don't want to be done with pain, But healing involves change. I think anybody that's in a kind of helping, in some sort of helping uh, field will tell you people don't always want to be healed. They they don't want pain. I don't think anybody wants pain. I don't think anybody wants suffering. But people don't necessarily want to change. And in fact, there's some things that we suffer from and I, that we at least enjoy the familiarity of it. Enjoy might be not be the right word, but we like rather than the unknown of what it looks like to be healthy. Like that feeling. I mean, you know, it is the sort of Folks who struggle with depression often describe that feeling of it sort of washing over you, right? And not that people want that, but it's at least familiar. And sometimes we want what is familiar more than we really want healing. 
And Jesus heals him, and it's the Sabbath. <laughs> so Jesus tells him, take up his mat. The guy takes up his mat, right? He's just been healed. The guy who just healed him tells him to take up his mat. Of course, it becomes a whole thing, right? There's a, you know, some, some folks see him and are scandalized that he would pick up his mat on the Sabbath. Apparently not missing that 38 years this guy's been laying there. And we can, that can seem cold, and yet you also see that what they're doing is holding on to a sense of authority. Right? They're holding on to what is familiar. They're missing the fact that what they're actually doing is, is holding God's law over against itself, right? The Sabbath over against doing what is right and loving your neighbor, they're missing that they're doing that. They're holding on to a certain kind of certainty that they have. You see, the, both somebody who is uncertain about being healed and their obsession with the law is all about holding on to certainty. It's about holding on to a, a certain kind of, you might say, authority. And Jesus comes along... <laughs> Right, and says, Well, you're healed. There's no going back to that. You're stepping out into the unknown. And to and to those who are scandalized by it, he is showing them who he really is as Lord of the Sabbath. Now again, we we talk about authorities, you know, in some ways we when we were talking about science stuff. That's kind of about authority, isn't it? But there's a lot of other authorities we go after that are not necessarily that. We have lifestyle gurus, uh, celebrities. I mean, if these people are doing it, right? And we laugh, but that's exactly what we think about because we follow them on Instagram. and we, It just seems so much more reasonable, you know, when they're into something. Uh, you know, only slightly more serious than that is our politicians, Right? <laughs> Because uh, we love following them, listening to what they say. And they, they, they sound so certain, don't they? And they tell you with, with absolute certainty, if you follow me, if you vote for me, all these things will change. Of course, they rarely change very much. But they tell you all the time that they're an authority that they know what's going on. Of course, the point isn't the, that it's necessarily wrong to be a celebrity or that politics is inherently bad. It is when, like we were talking about with science, we have made a religion of this stuff that it becomes a problem. And so the louder, you know, and so the louder they scream about their certainty the more obvious it becomes that, what, that actually following them is an act of faith. It is an act of trust. And you can think of all those times, right, you've been in those frustrating conversations, you know, taking politics, for example, and you think, this person is so blind. Of course, they're thinking, you're so blind, because it's who you've chosen to trust in.
the authority that you're willing to defer to. And I know you're thinking, I know, but I mean, the other side is so, yeah, exactly. Because the people you like told you to think that, didn't they? I'm not trying, again, to disparage politics or any of these other things, but to make the point that we are choosing the authorities we want to trust. And we choose them because it is convenient and comfortable for us. And to that, Jesus is asking us, are you ready to be discomforted? If you really want change, are you going to trust the people that keep telling you you have to trust me? Despite all the evidence, apparently, you need to keep trusting me. Or are we going to look to the one who can speak the word? Make it so. You see, Jesus has the ability, but we see here also what he is challenging them with by by making himself Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is claiming authority. That idea of Lord of the Sabbath is something Jesus says in the synoptics, and it's at work here in the background. And there's really two logic, two logics to the Sabbath, so this is important to understand. The Sabbath is not, in one sense, just any commandment among others. But the whole idea of the Sabbath is rooted in creation and redemption. When the Sabbath command is given in Exodus 20, the first time you get the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, we're told you should keep the Sabbath holy because the Lord created in six days and rested on the seventh. In other words, the idea of someone being Lord of the Sabbath is to say that this is, that's the Lord's prerogative over all that he made. But when the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 5, we're to, they're told, we're told to honor the Sabbath, to keep it holy, because we were slaves and were bought out of it redeemed. In other words, the whole, whole logic of the Sabbath is connected to God's two great works of creation and redemption. And Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. It's not an accident that he says his father is at work, <laughs> right? He's putting his finger on it, right? God is doing something now, and I am doing it with him. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus has the authority to tell this man to pick up his mat and go. So he has ability and has authority, but this is, this is key. He has affection. And this is something that can fly maybe under the radar in these, in these two stories. But notice what he does when that man is confronted by the, by the authorities and told, you know, you shouldn't have done this. Jesus finds him afterwards. Verse 14, chapter 5, right? Jesus comes and finds this man after the fact, after the crowd is dispersed, and he's left there. I mean, I don't know if he's got anywhere to go. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's been laying by the pool of Bethesda for years. And all the hubbub has died down, and Jesus finds him. 
And he tells him something. He says, sin no more. And this really gets to the heart of what is going on with Jesus' healings. There's a way to misunderstand what Jesus is saying, which is really common, because we tend to think that because, you know, a single sin leads to a single consequence. And we all kind of tend to think that way. And the Bible doesn't tell us that that's true. It, it tells us there are occasions when God intervenes because of that. But it is a fundamental fallacy to think, well, because somebody has a particular problem in their life, that there was one particular sin or another that, was, that led to that. Um, this, is a problem, this is a problem kind of throughout the Bible. The Bible is clear on that that is not the way we ought to interpret other people's lives even interpret our own lives. And yet, there is a connection between sin and the miseries of this world. But it goes back to the beginning, right? It goes back to Genesis, that we sinned, and therefore death and all the related miseries entered into this. And so when Jesus tells him to sin no more, Jesus is saying, listen, I'm starting to undo the, sin, the death and misery that plagues this world. So don't participate in the problem any longer. He's not telling him, look, you know, okay, so you sin that one time and look what happened, right? So don't sin again because who knows? It's gonna, that's not what he's telling him. He's telling him, don't participate in the sin that is the root problem in this world in your life <laughs> and in everybody else's life around you. In that way, healings are such a typical miracle for Jesus because they are signs that Jesus is doing something about not just one person at a time's, you know, various health problems, but that Jesus is undoing death because he is going after the root problem of our sin. Jesus is undoing the whole complex of sin that leads to death and misery. And so Jesus' whole ministry is fueled by his love. John has already told us this. John went out of his way to editorialize about it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John's been telling us this, that Jesus loves us, and we see that in action, right? He's got time and attention for this man, and yet it is a sign of his love for all of us. And when others are opposed to him, because he breaks the Sabbath, as they understand it, or because he talks a little too familiarly about the Father, that's what we're told in verse 18 is the, you know, they, they really have problems with those two things. Yet Jesus loved and persisted through that kind of adversity. Jesus was not deterred by it. In fact, Jesus was not even worried all that much, it seems, about the fact that others were going to be put off by it.
Jesus wants this man to be healed. Jesus wanted that boy to be healed because he loved. Jesus' affection is at the root of why he does all of these things. And that gets us to an important question because as we've been saying, there are there are, other, there are kinds of, other kinds of controls we try to manipulate in our lives. There are other authorities we run to. So why should we trust him? Because Jesus isn't going to give you what you want all the time. For various reasons. One, because we don't know enough about what's really unfolding in our lives. And sometimes he's actually protecting us from, you know, what we think is a good idea, which would be terrible. Sometimes we realize that in retrospect, right? But not always. So sometimes he does that. Sometimes he is still going to allow difficulties to come so that we can learn through them. And whatever his reasons are, and I'm not sure we can always give a full account this side of eternity, but why should we follow him where he leads? And the answer lies in his affection. Because the one thing I can tell you about politicians and technocrats, the one thing I can tell you about people who want to be famous is that they are not interested in you. I mean, yes, perhaps some of them individually are interested in various things. But Jesus alone, we can say, loves us. And you see, this is the difference between somebody who has to keep telling you, you can trust me, you should trust me, I'm the only one who's got answers for this and that and the other thing. The difference between somebody who's constantly telling you that and the person who actually does it is a world of difference. And isn't that the part of like healthy relationships in the long run that you have to figure out? over time, as so, so many of us miss, but have to grow into a maturity in general, but it is especially true about our spiritual life, is we need to actually follow the person who loves us, who has demonstrated it over and over again, who has demonstrated it against their own best interest, that they love us. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing, isn't it? The reason that Jesus has the authority to heal, the reason that Jesus can exercise the the power that he certainly has as God to heal is not merely because he has the power, but because he is undoing sin, which is at the root of death and misery. That's why the cross is an act of love. That is where all this is going. Is going to the cross so that Jesus would, in his love, deal with the sin that drives the whole problem. To deal with our sin. He is willing to face the very worst for you and me. It is why the resurrection and the undoing of death is an act of love. It is why Jesus is returning. It's because he loves you. And he wants the world to be fully healed. He wants the world to fully know him. 
He's returning for us, and while there are many twists and turns and questions that we have that will linger, and I'm not going to pretend that I have all the answers to those, be wary of anybody that's got all the answers. I do know that he loves us, and he loved us despite what was in his best interest. that he loved us and went to the cross. So Jesus, in dying for you, showed the full extent of his love. And so if you're asking yourself, okay, well, maybe he's divine. Maybe he has that ability. Maybe he even has the authority, but will he be good? That in contrast to all those other authorities in our lives, all those other things that we grasp for control with, Jesus has proven himself over and over and over again. And there is no place where it is more crystal clear than in the cross. So when he asked, do you want to be healed? The proof that you can follow him into the unknown, the proof that he's trustworthy is in his own wounds that he bears. And that is a question worth thinking about today, this week. Do you want to be healed? What are you hanging on to? And at this point, obviously, I'm talking about much more than just a question of your physical health. But all the other things that, that ail us, our sins, our struggles, our doubts, and I know that it's scary sometimes to actually deal with those, to enter into the unknown of what it means to be healed and to be healthy and whole. But every reason to follow him is in the cross because he leads with love by giving himself for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have every bit of confidence to follow you Because when you call us into change and healing, you don't leave us as we are, but rather you lead us into confidence based on the work of Jesus. So that the love of Jesus shows us how trustworthy you really are. And when you ask us if we want to be healed, we know that that healing is guaranteed. That it may take time, that it may take, well, a radical return of the Lord to completely finish, but it will not fail. For what Jesus says, he does. Teach us to trust in him, we pray in his name. Amen.